As I mentioned this morning, we'll be giving some consideration to that book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. I hope that you'll keep your Bible open to that place that was read earlier, the opening chapter of that book. And in just a moment, we'll take up a consideration of that very intriguing 12-chapter book in the Old Testament. You'll notice I've subtitled the particular lesson, The Problem of Life. I hope that for the next, oh, lesson or so, I don't know exactly how many many lessons may be in this series, but I think we probably will do at least three. But as we look at this book of Ecclesiastes, we'll strive again to take the text and let it lead us where God intends it to do, allowing it to speak and never attempt to insert into it what we think it ought to say. And so this opening slide is an introductory one that I intended to carry some of these ideas with it. There are many books in the Bible that really have been the source of a fair amount of controversy. You and I probably could list some of the major ones. The Song of Solomon has been one of them. And you and I did a lesson on that one back in March of this year and found that very encouraging and very fruitful to teach us a great lesson about love and dedication. But may I also say that the book of Ecclesiastes has really been the source of a great deal of very different controversy. In fact, you'll note about the middle of that slide, some of the viewpoints that some have taken to this book are extremely unusual. There are those who have used it to teach fatalism, namely that really you and I are such that it's only the absolute destiny that matters and you and I can't change anything. Well, that's taking things a little bit too far. There are others who say in this book, and they use it to really take a negative viewpoint toward life. Very negative. That isn't really correct either. There are others who use this book to teach moral epicurism. In other words, live it up, enjoy it, eat, drink, and be merry. There's nothing you can do about it anyway. That misses the whole point. All of these viewpoints, and many others might be listed, they really fall short of that truth that you and I so lovingly see at various places in this book of Ecclesiastes. And so it is, you'll notice near the bottom of that slide, it'll be our goal in this brief series to let the Holy Spirit speak to us through this book. What is the matter that you and I should use as we look at life? What's the correct way to look at it? The next slide takes us from here to a few basics. We would always do well when possible to reflect on some basic considerations of a given book so that we are apprised of what it is that's being said, who it is that said it, and to whom was it said. You know, we do a great disservice if we really don't try to ground ourselves in those ways. First, who wrote this book? Chapter 1, verse 1 reads like this. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Immediately we learn that whoever the spokesman is, this person called himself the son of David, and furthermore identified himself as king in Jerusalem. As you look down to verse number 12, one additional piece of information is given. It says, I the preacher was king over Israel in Jerusalem. The person who wrote this is the son of David, king over Israel, ruling in Jerusalem. As you and I think about the various sons of David, there's only one of them that was king over Israel, 
king in Jerusalem. And that leads me to conclude it had to be Solomon. He was the only one of David's sons that reigned in Jerusalem over Israel. Solomon was the author of this book, but not only that. You may notice that several other things are quickly pointed out to us in this book. First of all, in chapter number 2, this author was very, very wealthy. Again, was it true that Solomon was a wealthy man? Yes, it was. You can see perhaps about the middle of that slide in chapter 2, verses 3 through 10. Again, the spokesman, the writer, makes it clear that he was exceedingly wealthy. And so it is, I would ask you to notice, wasn't it true that God gave Solomon the opportunity of something? In 1 Kings 3, beginning in verse 5, right at the outset of his reign, God came to him in a dream and said, Ask whatever you want to. And you and I might remember that God was exceedingly pleased with the request that Solomon made because he asked for a wise and an understanding heart that he might be able to judge the people. And God was so pleased with that, He said, Not only will I grant that, I will also grant you the things you did not ask for, like money, wealth, prosperity, fame. And so Solomon had all of that. May I again say, all those evidences point that Solomon was the author of this book. Perhaps one more thing to be noted. The wealth that I mentioned earlier, I commented, and we all understand, that growing up in the palace since his father was David, he had access to wealth. But when you and I arrive at the actual text, like Second Chronicles 1.15, it lists for us the extent of Solomon's wealth. Silver and gold were so plenteous in Jerusalem, they were like rocks. Think about how wealthy he was. Remember, enemy nations, as they would send ambassadors and emissaries to visit, and they saw the overlaid temple. The inside was overlaid with pure gold. They were, in fact, very envious of that kind of thing, and later they, in fact, would come against it and actually take it away. Certainly then it's fair to say Solomon had his wealth, but he also had wisdom. In our study of the Song of Solomon, we noted that, but perhaps it's time to note it again. Do you recall with me in chapter 10 of 1 Kings how that a foreign leader, she was the queen of Sheba, she came a far distance because she says, I have heard about your wisdom, Solomon, and upon her arrival and upon her appreciation of it, she was able to say the half of it hadn't even been told me. She, you see, understood the greatness and the grandeur of the wisdom that Solomon enjoyed. It is perhaps worthy, though, to note one more unusual thing. So I think we've done a fair job in identifying the spokesman in the book. But in verses 1 and 12, an unusual word appears. It says, "...the words of the preacher." And then verse number 12 says, I, the preacher. This individual, in this case, the spokesman is called the preacher, and maybe that isn't that strange until we look at the Hebrew word that's, that appears. The Hebrew word that's translated preacher is the word koaleth. Now you may at first sight appear what's unusual about that. Here's what's unusual. That word in Hebrew is feminine. 
Now, Solomon was a male, so why isn't it masculine? Well, let me suggest the following. It would appear that what is being asserted by the use of that word is that this is a personification of wisdom. Now, the word wisdom is feminine in Hebrew. And so you and I should read this in the following way, it would seem to me. It is wisdom that is speaking. You and I ought not think of it purely as Solomon doing the talking. It is the personification of that which is prudent. The personification of that which is wise. And so over and again in this book, we shall appreciate it in that way. On that slide, then, one last thing remains before we launch into the text per se. The singular aim of this book is this. What is the answer to the problem of life? Is life worth living? Now, this book is going to do a fair justice in setting that idea before us. And you and I know the human family for millennia have struggled with the thought of life. The understanding that goes undoubtedly with it. This book, unlike any other in the Bible, sets that concept before us. You and I know the book of Job addresses the problem of human suffering. The book of Song of Solomon tackles the question of love and devotion in life. Neither of them do the same as this one. Is life worth living? Let's enter into a brief series of lessons in which we shall give thought to that question and use this book to help us answer it. I believe we'll find it a very intriguing study. I think we'll find it a very encouraging one by the same token before we're done. At that point, let's close that slide by saying this question, the question of life, the matter of is it worth living, not only is it debated and not only is it decided, it is set out in rather plain terms and tones in this book. On to the next slide we go. Having at least set things up this way, Brother Cale read a moment ago from the second verse of the opening chapter. We aren't left very long as we start reading this book until we wonder what it would seem that the answer is. As Cale read that, did you notice the way it, the way it sounded? Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That starts out in a very foreboding way, doesn't it? Five times in one verse, the word vanity appears. You'll immediately observe that that word vanity occurs 38 times in this book. Count them, 38 times. And that word means empty. It carries the thought of futility. As if one's labor, as if the investment in this thing is sure not to turn out positive. 38 times. In fact, I would ask you to at least notice a few of them. I didn't write anywhere near all of them, but chapter 1, verse 14. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. Furthermore, you'll note chapter 2, verse 11. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought, and on the labor that I had labored to do, and behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. Chapter 2, verse 17. 
Therefore, I hated life, because the work that is wrought under the sun is grievous unto me, for all is vanity and vexation of spirit. Chapter 4, verse 7, Then I returned, and I saw vanity under the sun. Chapter 6, verse 11, Seeing there be many things that increase vanity, what is man the better? Chapter 11, verse 8. But if a man live many years and rejoice in them all, yet let him remember the days of darkness, for they shall be many. All that cometh is vanity. Finally, chapter 12, verse 8. Vanity of vanity, saith the preacher, all is vanity. Now you may notice that chapter 12, verse 8 is an almost identical repetition of chapter 1, verse 2. It's as if here's a set of bookends. The book begins and the book ends with this declaration, All is vanity, saith the preacher. All is vanity and vexation of spirit. You'll notice I entitled at the very top of that slide, The Apparent Answer is No. If you start reading Ecclesiastes and you stop at chapter 1, verse 2, you would think the answer to the question, is life worth living? No. But notice I said that's the apparent answer. We've got to take the fullness of this book and we've got to appreciate not just a selected few verses, but the overall message. And then we'll arrive at the truth that Solomon, by way of the Holy Spirit, wished to reveal to us. As we continue on that slide, I hope that you noticed that there was a prepositional phrase that occurred in a number of those verses I just read. All is vanity and vexation of spirit, striving after the wind. This is man's labor under the sun. I don't want to take too quickly the thought of what's going to occur in later lessons, but the idea is going to be this perspective we've just read about, this one that has highlighted vanity, vexation, striving after the wind. The viewpoint is under the sun for this. This is what it looks like solely from a perspective under the sun. You really need to keep that in mind. We're going to find the ultimate answer, the one that's not under the sun, will be far brighter. It'll be far more lovely, and it'll be far more delightful. But solely from the viewpoint of under the sun, it sure looks bleak. It sure looks like vanity. And so, let's go a step further. Chapter 8, verse 6, the statement there. Because to every purpose there is time and judgment, therefore the misery of man is great upon him. Are we gaining a feeling, a sense? Verse after verse, at least that I've read, highlights man's lot here is miserable. Man's lot here is often filled with vanity. There is much vexation. There is much striving after what is of no profit. Well, indeed, again, remember, that's the viewpoint under the sun. If you look through things only through the glasses of materialism and only through the glasses that the devil would wish us to wear, that's what you see. You and I know that Jesus had a far different answer than this. That's why it's the apparent answer. Only from the viewpoint of materialism looks this way. 
Let's close that slide by beautifully saying, this vanity and vexation of spirit is not going to be the final answer. There's going to be another answer, a sweeter answer, a lovelier answer. But the next slide, the author Solomon begins to present us reasons as to why he says what he says. Vanity, vexation of spirit. Solomon, why would you say this? May I offer you this thought? One of the initial things that he says in chapter 1 has to do with the monotony. Would you agree that there is much about life that's monotonous? Let's let him tell us about this. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, beginning in verse number 3. What profit hath a man of all his labor which he taketh under the sun? One generation passeth away, and another generation cometh. But the earth abideth forever. The sun also ariseth, and the sun goeth down, and hasteth to his place where he arose. The wind goeth toward the south, and turneth about unto the north. It whirleth about continually, and the wind returneth again according to his circuits. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. Under the place from whence the rivers come, thither they return again. All things are full of labor, man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. The thing that hath been, it is that which shall be. And that which is done is that which shall be done. And there is no new thing under the sun. Is there anything whereof it may be said, See, this is new? It hath been already of old time which was before us. There is no remembrance of former things, neither shall there be any remembrance of things that are to come with those that shall come after. That's chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. I have asked you to consider a few particulars on that list. Solomon, the inspired writer, highlights before us here, there is a very clear monotony in terms of many particulars in life. I'm sure all of us in our better moments have thought about this. Let's let the inspired writer point out a few things to us. You know, we as human beings, we invest effort in thinking and interest and earnestness in things, and yet, when it comes to the basic features of planet Earth, can you and I change any of it? Look at this list. What about the motion of the sun? Did you notice in verse number 5? The sun rises and the sun sets. Regardless what you do, can you change in any way the way the sun rises or the way it goes down at the close of day? Well, we know we can't. We observe it. Astronomers watch it. Those who are scientists may pay great attention to it. And you may remember there was an eclipse about a year ago, and it was a fascinating thing to see. And yet, about 500 years ago, that same eclipse happened in this same part of the world. Now, you and I weren't alive to see it then, but it happened. What about this? The motion of the wind. You know, you and I often pay great attention to the wind. We note the direction from which it comes, and yet verse 6 says this, The wind goeth toward the south, and turneth about unto the north. It whirleth about continually, and the wind returneth again according to his circuits. 
I find that particular verse very interesting, among other things, for this reason. Solomon wrote this again roughly 3,000 years ago, long before scientists knew anything about the regular wind patterns of the earth. Today, scientists understand, meteorologists know it well, the wind really does whirl. That's the very word used here. It completes a circuit. It rises in the warmer parts of the planet like the tropics. It, it, it falls downward at about 30 degrees north and makes some of the greatest regions of dryness upon earth, like the Sahara Desert and otherwise. But it whirls. It completes a circuit. God said that it did a long time before the various scientists knew that, knew that to be true. So whether it be the wind, whether it be the sun, what about the water? Did you notice the statement in verse number 7? All the rivers run into the sea, but the sea is not full. How do we explain this? The Mississippi River and, yea, the Amazon even far more than that carry literally tons of eroded material into the sea every day, and yet the sea's not full. Solomon said something remarkable here. Long before men knew about a water cycle, Solomon hinted at it, didn't he? I would again point out that there is a monotony in terms of the overall features of our planet. The water system, the wind system, the sun motion. But that isn't all. Verse number 9 said this, The thing that hath been, it is that which shall be. You know, your dad and mom and your grandparents and your great-grandparents wrestled with the same realities of life that you and I do. They may have had different technology, but their daily activities often surrounded the same requirements and demands that ours do. And it's not just them. Go back a thousand years. There is a monotony to life that is inescapable. Solomon began this book by saying, given this overwhelming monotony, don't you think life isn't worth living? Now hold on to that thought. He's giving this monotony as an initial reason as to why it may appear. The answer to the initial question is no. In chapter 3, verses 1 to 8, there's probably a passage here that highlights this monotony in a remarkable way. To everything there is a season, and a time to every purpose under heaven, a time to be born, and a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up that which is planted, a time to kill, and a time to heal, a time to break down, and a time to build up, a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to get and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to rend and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time of love and a time to hate. A time of war and a time of peace. What profit hath he that worketh in that wherein he laboreth? That shirt that you mend, you know it's going to have to be mended again at some time. That shoe that you've got to get fixed or that new pair that you have to buy, it's going to tear up at some point. Do you and I sense an ongoing monotony to life? 
in the midst of all of these ongoing cycles, and we seem powerless to change any of it. I think we can begin to see one of the reasons he mentions for the apparent answer of no, life isn't worth living, is this ongoing monotony. Let's finish that slide like this. Isn't it true that monotony seems to include this? Chapter 2, verses 22 and 23. For what hath man of all his labor and of the vexation of his heart, wherein he hath labored under the sun? For all his days are sorrows and his travail grief, yet his heart taketh not rest in the night. This is also vanity. I'd like to share with you a moment about work. You know, that yard that you just mowed last week, it's going to have to be mowed again. That floor that you mopped and swept, it's going to have to be mopped and swept again. That house that you painted, it's going to have to be painted again. That deck that you refinished, everything I mentioned, you know, it's going to have to be done sooner or later again. Furthermore, it may well be that the elements of weather will tear down what you've built and it'll have to be completely reconstructed. Monotony to life, we know it well, don't we? You know, when it comes to labor and work, we understand that this life is often fraught and filled with tireless effort. That fence that you fix, a deer may well run over it and tear it down. The bull may push against it and tear it down. It's going to have to be redone. Do you get tired of having to repair it? Solomon, it seemed, became a little bit weary with all that labor and effort that seemingly has to always be done again. Let's look at another verse in chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. What profit hath he that worketh in, the, in that wherein he laboreth? I have seen the travail which God hath given to the sons of men to be exercised in it. That word travail and the word labor that occurs several times in the book, it seems to carry the thought literally, work until exhaustion. Now does that sound happy? Does that sound like a lovely grand thought? Work till you simply can't work anymore. Solomon said, seems like that's a lot of what life's all about. Under the sun. Now I keep using that phrase under the sun because we've got to keep that in mind or else we'll let these verses we've read draw us away from others that I haven't yet read. Is life worth living? Let's close that slide like this. Chapter 2 verse 17 read, Therefore I hated life, because the work that is wrought under the sun is grievous unto me. For all is vanity and vexation of spirit. From the perspective of under the sun, it's easy to hate life given this monotony, this endless work, and all these other features we're going to learn about in the next lesson. But at this point, might we transition from this section of the lesson to this one? Because I did want to end this lesson, or at least factor in a part of it, and describe it with some words in which we are encouraged to enjoy it. You know, in light of what we've learned so far, vanity, vexation of spirit, ceaseless labor, hatred for life, 
we were tempted to miss verses like these. As you start that top of that slide with me, there is a message we will see bubble to the surface on a few occasions in this book. And this message is to appreciate life and enjoy it and do so because of the other things that God has instilled within it. And so in chapter 2, verse 24, listen to this. There is nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink and that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw that it was from the hand of God. For who can eat, or who else can hasten hereunto more than I? For God giveth to a man that is good in his sight wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner he giveth travail, to gather and to heap up, that he may give to him that is good before God. This also is vanity and vexation of spirit. I may pause and say this, if you and I have not the proper perspective on life, that verse says we're going to miss the whole point. We perhaps will be inundated with that monotony. We will lose sight of the fullness of our appreciation and life may well appear to be rather fruitless. But according to that same verse, if we appreciate the hand of God and we see the appearance of those things, we'll have every reason to enjoy it and to have joy. The viewpoint you and I have will make all the difference in the world as to our answer to this question. But surely we can appreciate this. You'll notice next on that slide, chapter 3, verse 13. And also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. There is something to be noted Labor properly directed with the understanding of right perspective, motivated by the message from the God of heaven, that can lead to great enjoyment, rich appreciation, and a sense of purpose and meaning in life which all these references to under the sun can never give you. Under the sun doesn't have heaven's perspective because heaven is not under the sun. But when we have the proper perspective... It makes our labor here directed in the right way and it'll provide us the answer to all that that we're going to see next week. For right now, we need to do this. Look at chapter 3, verse 22. Wherefore I perceive that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his portion, for who shall bring him to see what shall be after him. Now, there's a hint in that about the coming reality of death and the ongoing occurrence of things that will happen when you and I are gone. But Solomon's going to direct us in the right way to see that as we should. In chapter 5, verse 18, Behold that which I have seen, it is good and comely for one to eat and to drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor that he taketh under the sun, all the days of his life, which God giveth him, for it is his portion. Every man also to whom God hath given riches and wealth, and hath given him power to eat thereof, and to take his portion, and to rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. You can already see that there are a few places in this book where there's cause to rejoice. There's cause for happiness. And there's cause to be motivated toward an answer different than no. 
life is worth living. And you and I are going to find that so many times in the book. I chose to begin this series by noting if one isn't careful, you find in this book more negativity than what we should. All of these apparent answers are under the sun. It's the way that we ought to view it and can view it if we don't have God in our life. Jesus said in John 10 verse 10, I came that they may have life and have it more abundantly. That is not the answer of under the sun. That's the answer of a life filled with forgiveness, a life motivated by remission, and a life who knows the Master, and the Master knows him or her. That's the kind of life you and I surely would desire to have. And we'll find it appearing at the proper place and time in this book of Ecclesiastes. But for tonight, let's close this opening lesson in the series by summarizing some of what we've seen this evening. Ecclesiastes has 12 chapters. And time and again in these 12 chapters, we will find tremendous wisdom. And this lesson, more than not, has emphasized the viewpoint under the sun. If all we know are the things of this earth, it seems so monotonous. Labor, work, wind, water, and the sun, all of it happened and we are powerless to change any of it. It seems so monotonous and so empty, so futile, so filled with vanity and vexation of spirit. But yet before we're done, we'll see the proper viewpoint, the one that has an interest of above the sun, will have life that's purposeful, meaningful, filled with not only value, but filled with a proper understanding of that value. And so on that slide, may I say to all of us, there's reason to appreciate a degree of enjoyment because our perspective is motivated and directed in the way that fits to our existence in this universe. Tonight, what about you and your life? Have you come to a point where you seemingly are in despair? It's seemingly into a position in which you see no direction that looks positive. I hope that you'll find especially the book of Ecclesiastes very helpful to you. Remember, the preacher's the one talking to us. The personification of wisdom, ultimate wisdom is found, as you and I say, although it appears to be vanity and vexation of spirit. Chapter number 12 is ultimately going to say this. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments. This is the whole duty of man. If your life and mine isn't based on that truth, we're missing not only something, but we're missing everything. Tonight, if you need to respond to the gospel call of invitation, Jesus is what fills that void giving life purpose, direction, and meaning. And if we could help you tonight by instilling that, using the Word of God into your life, we'd be honored and we'd be excited to do it. You know, if you have been a faithful child of God, but tonight you're not faithful. You've become wayward. You've allowed a life to you thought be instilled with meaning by something else like money or maybe fame or notoriety you know that's not going to work. Solomon had that. He tried it, and he said it didn't work. We're going to see that, among other things, in the next lesson. 
for tonight, if we could be, though, of assistance to anyone in your wish to come forward and your wish to be a faithful member of the body of Christ, we would love to help you. This song of encouragement has been selected, and now is an opportune time and a convenient one. If you need our assistance, we want to be here for you. Won't you come while together we stand and while we sing?